Hey, it's Kirsten. This is part two of my conversation with Luke Stark, an assistant professor in the Faculty of Information and Media Studies at Western University in London, Ontario, and Jevin Hudson, an associate at Hintz Law PLLC. We're talking about their paper, Physiognomic Artificial Intelligence, which appeared in the Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal. In part one, we started with the troubling history of physiognomy and phrenology. These two pseudosciences were widely discredited in the 20th century, but their notions that people's external appearances can be a way to access internal truths about them have made a comeback in the form of AI systems that purport to be able to perform this type of analysis. Here, we pick things up with me asking Jevin about the menu of regulatory options he and Luke propose in the paper to remedy the fundamental problems with this physiognomic AI. So, Jevin, I thought maybe you could answer this, talk a little bit about some of the remedies, the the law. I thought it was interesting, like the different, I will say, the mechanisms that we might approach this. One small, it's not a small detail, but I was surprised to see, and it's an anecdote kind of in the beginning, um, that there were competing bills in Washington state legislature around facial recognition technology, which excluded facial analysis and emotional extrapolation from the definition. It was like, it was, I just, that amazed me because it's one of the major problems. It it just took a whole bunch of the problems of facial recognition and said, we're just excluding this from the bill. But anyway, there are other remedies, but that was an interesting example. Yeah. Well, I mean, in many ways, this sort of, I mean, this paper kind of came out of those sort of initial legislative discourses around facial recognition in Washington state, where we had sort of one side of sort of community advocates uh, and impacted communities advocating for sort of the abolition or banning or prohibition of facial recognition technologies, where on the sort of the other side of the aisle, we had many of the larger, you know, companies here in Washington state um, attempting to, one, scope regulation to simply facial recognition because to expand it to any other form of facial analysis would impact a host of other artificial intelligence and machine learning tools that they are either currently working on, developing, um, uh, or, or currently use. So their sort of goal was to sort of keep the conversation to facial recognition because to open it up to facial analysis, so to speak, would both hurt the bottom line and otherwise sort of impede other efforts, which in many ways here inspired the paper. It's like, well, all of those other things are like fundamentally worse. Like facial right. recognition is bad. Like as bad as contemptible is like is, is worthy of prohibition as communities and advocates have laid out over years, right? Um, but this entire other arena uh, is deserving of inc- like an incredibly <laughs> higher level of scrutiny from lawmakers and regulators. And so for us, uh, in terms of sort of developing, how do we address physiognomic AI? Obviously we situate our response with in sort of the field of abolition where obviously the goal is to abolish physiognomic AI systems. We fundamentally reject computer vision applied to humans. And so we have to think about, okay, what sort of mechanisms, at least in the United States, might allow us to sort of effectuate the abolition of physiognomic artificial intelligence. And sort of first and foremost, we sort of start with consumer protection law, which in the United States has really been sort of the active area for thinking about sort of unfairness in AI and how you know we might prevent these systems or otherwise regulate them obviously sort of reflecting on some of the limitations of consumer protection law, uh, we sort of aim for uh, legislators actively sort of enshrining physiognomic AI as being an unfair and deceptive per se, uh, effectively where consumer protection regulators don't have to go through arguing why physiognomic AI is like unfair or deceptive under extant standards. And as I think we've laid out, it's like these are fundamentally morally bankrupt systems that, you know, federal regulators should have the ability to sort of sidestep like a massive investment 
investigative process because you know higher review can throw research papers <laughs> um, from various institutions and sort of engage in this sort of unnecessary process. Uh, and so we sort of talk about different ways in which they might be sort of legislated as being unfair and deceptive. We talk about sort of some of our efforts that we undertook in Washington State to attempt to do that. In Washington State, for example, there's like 160 different practices uh, <laughs> under state consumer protection law that are sort of fundamentally unfair and deceptive. You know, and so if I, law. just to understand that really fast, the argument is, which I like, is that this is snake oil, to use Arvin's term. This is snake oil. And as a class of, of computer vision offerings, of AI offerings, it should just be def, like labeled as unfair and deceptive. To, cl to claim that you can identify someone as trustworthy, happy, sad, whatever it might be, anything, possible shoplifter, whatever, whatever the, whatever the um, purported computer vision AI is, is saying, it, it's not possible. It's pseudoscience. And so it would be considered deceptive. Yeah. I like, I mean, that makes sense to me, given your paper. So I can understand why you make the argument. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, all, I would, I, all I'd add to that is sort of the levers there, whether that's the FTC making a policy statement, engaging in Magnus and Moss rulemaking, or rather just lawmakers just fundamentally enshrining it uh, to, you know, give further direction to, you know, consumer protection authorities. Just really quickly, I mean, one one reason why it's snake oil, right, is the kind of the kind of broken telephone that happens between academic papers or, you know, actual machine learning results, right, which often are pretty narrow and they, you know, they present a kind of statistical, you know, a, a, a probability range that then somehow becomes this kind of like 100% we can do X, Y, and Z, right? So, so whenever just whenever you're looking at one of these claims by a company, you got to be really break down exactly on what experimental basis are they making the claim, you know, the claim in the first place. And then, of course, on top of the of the, these kind of conceptual problems that backstop the argument. So, but that's you know it's hard to do that. You have to, you have to have a lot of you have to have a lot of data. You have to have the data from the companies themselves, and and so that's why that's why right. I think we we can say to the FTC, look, you know, this is just not accurate. This is unfair. Right, and it built and it builds on some of the stuff that the FTC has already put out with respect to guidance around AI, where they're like, "Don't overstate uh, the findings. Don't overstate the sort of capacity of your AI. Do not state that your AI is bias-free." Right. Um, and here we sort of think like this is an arena of sort of AI and ML technologies that just need to be fundamentally off limits. Like they are fundamentally unfair. They are fundamentally deceptive on on so many different levels on, on, uh, and it sort of represents an area that we think the FTC and state consumer protection regu regulators can sort of say, this is the red line, like facial analysis onward that is attempting to predict these particular characteristics is a no-go and is going, we're going to effectively police it under, you know, federal or state consumer protection law. And we think that might be a very helpful incentive to maybe stop, uh, um, you know, larger institutions and smaller institutions from, per, you know, proceeding to, you know, developing and deploying these systems. I think, yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. But on top of that, you know, we, we, we unpack sort of other mechanisms as well. Our goal is really to offer sort of a menu and a toolkit of options for policymakers because, you know, no body of law is necessarily perfect. And so we also talk about, you know, potentially enshrining in this in the context of biometric law. We could imagine in sort of the context of BIPA adding a sort of another categorical prohibition. We also talk about anti-discrimination law and building on some work we also had done here in Washington State around attempting to prohibit these systems in places of public accommodation. Um, as sort of a broad brush prohibition, this would obviously touch on a host of both quasi 
private and public institutions, you know, that shape access to basic social goods, but also just, you know, impact people's dignity, right? The ability to go into a store or to go about public life and not be impacted by systems that are trying to categorize you as being suspicious or a criminal, or even just categorizing you uh, along particular protected class lines, you know, that impacts our ability to enjoy public life. And it really calls into, you know, some of the similar questions under you know, uh, civil rights law. And so our, our goal is to offer a menu of options. I think, <laughs> you know, <laughs> AI raises enough concern that we need to exhaust uh, uh, legal methods that we at least have here in the U.S. I, I think we have existing tools that could allow us to abolish physiognomic AI, but obviously they're uh, worthy of new potential frameworks and paradigms. But I think we have a toolkit. It, you know, requires a political will that I think is, again, part of the we hope to be, you know, the conversation and discourse around like how we prevent both facial recognition and larger, you know, facial analysis systems that brain and physiognomic. Yeah, I, th- I liked how you uh, gave a menu of options with the first bucket being unfair and deceptive, um, which given your paper makes a lot of sense. And I thought the idea of biometric was uh, a good, I mean, they're, they're all good avenues. It gives people a couple of options. I mean, isn't it, isn't, isn't it funny that you know, we have all, in some ways, it almost feels like we're, we're, we're overdoing it because we have all of these options and we point to all these, all the ways that, that these technologies run afoul of all these different kinds of, of regulation. But, right. I mean, it's, it's odd that, that that would be, you know, this is so, so obviously a problem across so many different vectors and facets that it, it makes it sort of all the more amazing that, that these technologies are not just, not just continuing to exist, but are being still being feted largely. Now, of course, there's been a lot of pushback in the last couple of years, but, you know, not enough. I really, I really analogize these technologies to, um, to a rotten onion where the, 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 the counter arguments for the, these technologies proponents tend to kind of involve these different layers. So, so you talk about the problems of use. We, we know there are lots of issues with, with the use of these, these technologies around, you know, uh, discrimination, the chilling of political speech, et cetera. Well, the, the response from, from technologists in favor of technologies is, oh, well, we'll just improve them. Well, you know, or, so, you know, we, or actually, well, so sorry, that's not, that's not the response. The response to the use case is, well, we have nothing to do with that. We can't, we have no ability to ch- change how people use these technologies, which is obviously not true. Then they there's the technical it. problem. I mean, they you patent know. it. You know well, what I mean? Like, it. Exactly. Yeah, right. I mean. right. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then there are the technical issues. And, and the response to the technical issues around, around accuracy is, oh, well, we'll just get more data. It'll be better. It'll be better. And, and so that's, that, you know, and so that's the second layer of the rotten onion. But then, but then I think that's why it was so important to make this point in the paper at, that a conception, at a conceptual level, quantifying the human face and body and putting those quantifications into kind of categories and classifications and conversations with each other is it just automatically opens up the door to things that we would recognize as racism and sexism and and other forms of discrimination and so at a conceptual level like even even the center of that onion is rotten and and that that's why that's why we're so you know committed to all of all of these different legal remedies because the whole the whole edifice is just not good Right. I, and, and I think that's where there's this, you can feel this huge disconnect and where I think actually the paper does a nice job of saying that within people that study AI ethics or just in general, it is just a non-starter. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, you see it and it's offensive on so many levels and you do a great job of explaining how offensive it is, both as like a dignity harm, as actual harm to people, as as actually just doesn't even work, but we're still kind of going through the motions and harming people for no benefit of it whatsoever. And yet the other side is almost extremely the opposite, where the opposite meaning it's commercialization and use within governments and businesses and even research as an endeavor continues to proliferate. 
And they're kind of shocked, shocked when there's pushback. And it just out of all the areas that we all look at, it seems to be this one area where the two sides seem so far apart, where it's just like the use of consumer data, just generally, even those within organizations have to say, well, I mean, it, there are no laws. I mean, they kind of know that it's not great, right? Like they, they kind of admit it, but this one, they don't seem to admit that it's wrong at all. I mean, there's Wall Street Journal articles about it. The Washington Post writes about it. It's, it just seems to proliferate with how you could get through. How can we categorize students? How can we look at people who are applying for a job? How can we look at people en masse when they're in the airport? How can we identify future terrorists? Like all of this, who could be, who's actually going to be trustworthy to give them a loan? I, all these uses that you would think and the matchmaking that you point out are, are based on this pseudoscience that, as you rightly put, uh, the scientifically baseless, racist, and discredited pseudoscientific fields, which purport to determine people's characters, capabilities, and future prospects based on their facial features or the shapes of their skulls, should be anathema to any researcher or product developer working in computer science today. And so we see it and think, anathema. You know what I mean? This is like, a, and, and yet, and yet, it can t- you do a great job of listing all the ways it keeps going. I think one thing just really quickly to say, and this speaks to the the this idea that the physiognomic impulse, you know, went sort of underground, but wasn't was it didn't disappear between let's say 1945 and 19 you know well 2005 or whatever it was, right? Is is is, is that I think a lot of scientific disciplines, evolu- you know, evolutionary biology, certain parts of anthropology, right? A lot of, of scientific disciplines have kept vestiges of this of this kind of physiognomic idea. You know, or or have not interrogated closely the you know what they're actually studying and what the proxies that they think they're looking at you know and that what they think tell them things actually tell them and and I think that's you know so I think actually a lot of people in the sciences they wouldn't agree with phrenology they wouldn't agree with some of some of these kind of crass physiognomic ideas but but there would be a kind of a kind of belief that you can tell certain things maybe quite limited things. Um, about individuals based on on you know exterior traits, and again, informally, right? Some humans do that all the time, and we are we are more or less good at it, often less good at it. So I think I think that's part of why this keeps going. And I, I think agree. we in the sciences, or broadly in the sciences and social sciences, really need to have the conversation and really and really dig into the assumptions in some of those fields. Because I, you know, there's been lots of great critical work, not, you know, from in, in STS more broadly that makes the point that, you know, none of these fields have been have been studying the things that they think they're studying, right? They're not, the, the, the proxy data that they're using is not necessarily determinative. Some of the underlying assumptions that are being made are indeed racist and sexist. And so, you know, this is a bigger conversation for the for the quote unquote human sciences to be having. Some of the, some folks in those in the in in the, in those fields are absolutely, but not everybody is. And and so, right. And so and so, when those more retrograde notions from those fields get applied in computer vision, that's where you get these these big problems. That's great. Yeah. No. Thank you. I and I appreciate the work and the and the thoroughness by which you both go through the problem. Um, and the scope of the issue at, um, in general. And so as I usually wrap up, I'd like to ask people if there's anyone in the field of tech ethics, it can be in your discipline or someone totally outside your discipline that you look forward to hearing from. It can be a young scholar, someone that is like you look forward to seeing what their work is or there's new work that you like to talk about. Uh, there are just so many awesome folks. 
I mean, I'll give a couple of a couple of shout outs to, to to Canadians, fellow Canadians that I really love. One is Dabraji, who I think his work is probably well known by now, but it, but who is um, doing awesome things at the Mozilla Foundation on these topics. The second is um, Catherine Stinson. She's uh, in philosophy and computer science at Queen's University, and she um, has a neuroscience background and is really working hard to produce, you know, produce like empirical studies that that kind of systematically work through the methodology of some of these physiognomic AI papers and and debunk it. So, you know, so that's really, really awesome work too. So they're, they're, they're fab. There's so many awesome, amazing voices in this space. Um, it's wonderful. It's wonderful that there's, there's so much good work happening right now. Yeah. I, I'd add to that. I mean, uh, to, to Luke's point to Deb, uh, to Deb's paper at fact, the fallacy of AI functionality, I think really hits home, uh, to some of this that, you know, regulators really need to consider, <laughs> like, how do we respond to AI when we lose, when we uh, let go of the assumption that it fundamentally works outside of the academic space? I want to give a shout out to Jennifer Lee at the ACLU of Washington, who's been doing, I think some really great work on the policy front and trying to expand, not only say like the express definition of facial recognition, but thinking about how we can drive sort of community centric tech policy and sort of expand expanding, you know, the traditional discourses around what's possible um, and leveraging sort of existing, you know, regulatory frameworks to, say, prohibit physiognomic AI, uh, as well as facial recognition and other uh, problematic tools. Well, gosh, I really appreciate it. And thanks so much. It's always, it's great to talk with you. And I really love the paper. And I had been, I knew Luke was working on work that was around this area. So I was excited when it came out. And I, I'm really glad that you guys did it. And thanks for coming on and spending, you know, 40 minutes with me and stuff. But anyway, thank you very much for coming. It's such a pleasure. Thanks so much. Of course. Great to finally meet you. Tech Talks is a production of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center. For more, visit techethics.nd.edu.